Welcome to Inspiring People and Places, where we interview national leaders in the architectural, engineering, construction, and development industry in an effort to educate, innovate, and inspire industry professionals to disrupt the status quo, improve their project teams, and steward public and private investments more effectively. I'm your host, BJ Kramer, President and CEO of MCFA. Allow me to introduce today's guest. Boy, am I excited for this conversation. Before I, I uh, welcome Judy to the show, I want to want to kind of comment here. Two things. One, for any founder out there, uh, I think Judy has done everything you've ever dreamed of doing in your visioning board or on your in your strategy sessions, from starting to to exiting and then and then moving on. Uh, and then for our professionals and our engineers out there, I don't think there's a project or a client type that Judy has not touched. Uh, so this is going to be an exciting conversation. And, and I want to start with with a quote by Judy that I found here. Uh, when she was reflecting on her vision for the company, Judy said, when I found it niche engineering, I envisioned a company that went above and beyond to meet client needs and that would do an excellent engineering work with, as we like to say, quote, a smile on our face. I'm truly delighted with the company that niche engineering has grown to become and how the leaders and employees are so well prepared and poised to bring the company to even more success. I know the company will be, quote, building better communities with you for a long time, end quote. Judy, you've done done it all. I am so excited for this conversation. Welcome to Inspiring People and Places. It is very obvious you are an inspiring person. Uh, so Judy Niche, welcome. Well, thank you. Thanks. I appreciate being here. I've had a number of people that have inspired me. So if I guys, if I can inspire someone, happy. Well, let's let's start with how how your career came about, and you know what led us to today. I I know you have a ton of experiences, but we like the the audience to get to kind of know your career path and your journey. So, where did it all begin? Well, I grew up in a small town in Western Massachusetts. I was my high school valedictorian, but it was a school where. You know, like I, I didn't get the excellence in science or excellence in math award. I got others because those went to the boys. Mm. Graduated high school in 1971. So that's quite a while ago. Um, I went to WPI, Worcester Polytechnic Institute, because I liked math and science. I had no idea what an engineer was, but I just knew I wasn't going to be a nurse or a teacher, which is what I'd always been told I should become. Well, I uh, sort of checked all the departments out at WPI when I was a freshman because I knew I was going to switch into one of the engineering majors and I switched to civil engineering. And then I was fortunate to talk to a grad student who lived one town away from me and he talked about the summer job he had. Well, I got a summer job there as well. And two summers working for this small civil survey firm in Connecticut, that was ex exactly the kind of work that my firm has done, but on a much, much, much larger scale. So I'm thrilled that the connections I made as a kid in college really helped drive what my career became. And if, if I had to do it all over again, I'd do it exactly the at, same at way. At what point in time did you get the entrepreneurial itch that, you know what, I, I can do this on my own? So my first job out of WPI was for a firm called Schofield Brothers. And I was there for about three years uh, working for a gentleman who went to uh, he, he left the headquarters and went to run a branch office. And I went down to talk to him one day about working for him down there, thinking I'd have more opportunity in a smaller office to do more things and I'd get exposed to a lot more. Well, as it turned out, they really didn't have enough work. But shortly after that, that gentleman quit to start his own business 
two towns over. And our company, I think at the time we had maybe a half a dozen branch offices, all were run by one of the shareholders or partners in the firm. And they didn't have anyone that could, at the drop of a hat, take over this office. So the president of the firm asked me if I would like to. I was 24 years old. Like, what do I know about anything? I wasn't even a PE yet, but I had shown interest in working in that office. And anyway, I ran that office for four years. I learned a ton. My, my boss, the president of the company, said to me, well, you're going to need to take like accounting one and accounting you know, two, just so you know, because you're going to be in charge of all your budgeting and your um, billings and everything at your branch. And he said, you should probably take like some business management courses because I hadn't taken any as an undergraduate in engineering. And then he said, and take child psychology because your employees will act like children <laughs> someday. So I did all of those at a junior college that I could drive to and take night classes. I mean, in every course I took, I was the only person in the class that really was living it, what we were learning in the class. And, and I learned what I needed to learn. And um, so, so that was good. Two, two um, things I want to highlight there for, for our audience. Um, I'll start with the last thing you just said, which was you were taking classes while, while doing this. So you had live application. And I, we talk all, about, all the time about being a life learner. And I think that's why it's so important because these ideas that we learn in college, like we didn't have any application, we didn't have any reference for them. But when you're learning them on the fly in the working world, like you learn so much faster because you can be applying them as you go. Second thing I want to highlight is at 24 years old, uh, you said that you had shown interest and when the opportunity arrived, it was brought to you. So the number of successful people I have met that early on in their careers said yes when the opportunity was just, you know, and despite, you know, any reservations or fears or can I do this, you know, just kind of step into the, to the uncomfortable and, uh, and take it, take the bull by the horn. So I, I wanted to highlight that. Um, so you're 24, you, you, you run this office for how long? Um, I ran it for four years, and then it was 1982, which was a very bad recession. Great year, though. And that was the year we, I was born. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. <laughs> You're a lot younger than I am. <laughs> Today's my oh, birthday, I, okay? I knew that, too. <laughs> Happy birthday. Thank you. Anyway, yeah. Um, anyway, we'll, we'll go on to your question. <laughs> uh, it was a recession, and interest rates for home ownership back then, mortgages were 16%. You know, I had a 14.5% mortgage back then. Construction loans were north of 20%. So nobody was building anything. And all of our work was small commercial developments, a lot of residential subdivisions and, you know, smaller projects in this small branch office. So I ended up going back to the headquarters. I was still a vice president of the firm. I had more people under me, larger volume of, of projects, bigger projects. But everybody remembered me as the 21-year-old kid right out of college at, at headquarters. So I chose to leave the firm at that point, went to a firm in Boston called Allen & Demersion. Within a year, I was on their board. A year later, they I became a shareholder, and they changed the name of the company to Allen & Demersion Major and Niche. And so that was terrific. Seven years there, it's another recession, 1989. That was the recession when banks were going out of business and I mean, it was a really bad time in the economy. And um, we were approached out of the blue by a client who wanted to buy our building. We had bought our own building in Cambridge, right across from City Hall and Massachusetts Ave. 
and he wanted to buy our business and our building. And we could see the writing on the wall. One of our tenants, an entire floor was an architect who had already gone out of business. And so we said, you know, this is probably a good thing to do. Well, there were three of us that owned the company. The person buying us only wanted two to remain. So I chose to leave at that point. Um, I should share a couple of funny stories though, because uh, when I was going to this firm in 1982, I talked to two people who had their own businesses. One was the man who had been, run had been running the office that I took over. He had been had his own business for about four years and I went and talked to him and I said, so I'm thinking about doing something on my own. What advice do you have for me? And he said, don't do it unless you have a year's salary in the bank. And I just bought my second house and I, you know, every bit of spare cash I had went into my second house. So I had no cash. And I talked to another man who had his own civil survey firm and he said, tongue in cheek, don't do it unless you have a wife that works <laughs> because you're going to need some income for the family and you're going to need health insurance. And he said, you're not going to be able to take a salary probably for your first year or longer. Um, so because of both of those reasons, I, I had gotten a job in, in 1982. So in 1989, I was like, okay, he only wants two of the three of us to remain. This is the person buying our, our business. So I said, I'm going out on my own now. It's a bad recession. I don't care. I'm a woman, a PE. I've got name recognition in the industry. If it doesn't work out starting my own business, I have other options that are perfectly fine. And as I said at my retirement party recently, you know, I'm glad I never had to go to my plan B because it was a great 30 plus year run as niche engineering. So 1989, I retired April 1st, April Fool's Day of 2020, which was two weeks into the uh, pandemic. So my retirement party happened just a couple of months ago. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, what a ride. 1989 to April 2020. You're still active in the industry though. Talk to us about what you're doing now. Yes. Uh, so I'm on five boards, um, a construction company here in Massachusetts, ETNL Corp. Um, there, theirs is an advisory committee to the board of directors. I'm on the board of directors of Pannoni Associates out of Philadelphia, 1400 person company with 35 offices all over the Eastern US. I've been an outside director on their board for about 10 years. I'm an outside director on the board of Air St. Gross, an architecture planning and landscape architecture firm based in Baltimore with offices in DC and Tempe, Arizona, and a few employees in random parts of the country, and have been an outside director there for five years. I chair the compensation committee for Air St. Gross, which is a big eye-opener for me because we never had a comp committee at Niche. And um, on the Pannoni board, I'm a member of the board DEI committee. So it's been interesting really being in the inside and seeing how other firms are really run and how the governance um, happens. Can you firm. share a little bit about that? I'm, I'm um, curious what, what goes on in the meetings and, and who's engaging you and what, what kind of strategic guidance or, or input or advice are you, are you giving? Um, so I'll share one story, which um, I've shared before, and I have permission to share it from Pannoni. This is probably five, six years ago, we had the pre-read package for the board meeting. I read through it and one section was uh, vice president approvals, you know, officers of the corporation approvals by the board. So we get to that point in the meeting and the chairman says, okay, we're now at this one. Can I have a motion? Can I have a second? All those in favor. And I said, wait, wait, I said, discussion. Oh, sorry. I figured this was routine. 
I said, I said, normally it would be, but I said, I have a couple of questions. And I said, these people look astounding. They look, they look amazing, but they're all named George, David, Michael, and nobody has a last name that's Chin or Hernandez or Al Shawaf or, you know, they all appear to me to be white men. But I said, I don't know that. So I wanted to ask that question. And, and they looked through, I think there were 16. And they said, yeah, they are. I said, well, I said, I'll vote for this. I said, I think they all look astounding and they'd be good. But I said, you need to realize the message you're giving your employees, whether they're minorities or they're women, is that there's no place for you at the top of this firm. That's not our intent at all. I said, I know that, but your actions are telling people otherwise. And I said, the other thing that really bothers me is that nobody else noticed this internally in the firm, you know, until I just brought it up. And we had a brand new board member at that meeting of, of I would say 40 something-ish white male. Um, and he said, actually, he said, I had the same reaction Judy did. Um, he said, it's my first meeting with so I didn't want to be the one to say it. <laughs> so as it turned out, they then, you know, they had certain things ongoing and it just brought awareness to the issue for them. And I'm a firm believer that until you're aware of something, you can't create change. And, you know, that was like a two by four kind of awareness, but they've definitely made changes because of it. And that delights me because um, I know it wasn't intentional right. what they were doing, but you know, needless to say, though, the impact, you know, internally was with, you know, not, without not a doubt. And, and you spoke up and you, you were the voice for, for those employees. Um, so that's a great yeah. example of what you're there to do and, and provide that perspective. And, you know, you're still there. So they appreciated the perspective. Mm -hmm. They respect your, your professional opinion. So um, excellent story. Uh, anything else that you're doing in quote retirement? Uh, well, I'm on five boards. So those are the three paying boards. I'm on a bank board, which is also a paying board. Um, but I also am chair of the board of trustees of the Boston Architectural College. My late husband uh, was an architect. That was his where he went to school. And when he passed away about 10 years ago, he had created a fund for them. And it turns out we had no idea on this. It was the biggest bequest the college had hmm. ever received. So they immediately asked me, you know, would you come on our board? And I was at the time, um, I think I was on the board uh, for commercial real estate women crew network, uh, which is an international real estate development organization for, for women. They do have men that are members as well, but it's probably 99% female membership. And sole purpose is to get more women in commercial real estate and help them get ahead faster and to do business with each other. So I was on the board, I became president-elect and then president, and then I was on the board for years past president and the Boston Architectural College reached out again and said, do you have time now? And I said, yeah, I think I do. Um, and I, I, I went to WPI, as I said, I've been a trustee there. I was the first woman alum to be a trustee. Uh, I think I was 35 when I became a trustee and, and now I'm trustee emeritus. So I've been on that board for you know 30 plus years. So. I kind of know what it takes to be on a board of trustees for a college. I've been on virtually every committee at the WPI board, except for, I think, executive compensation. So, you know, I understand about being a trustee and the fact that you're looking for time, talent, and treasury. You know, when I was 35, I was chair of the uh, facilities committee at WPI, and I would tell the, the men on the board, mostly were older, well-established businessmen, 
okay, I'm time and talent, you're treasury. <laughs> and, and and I'll spend your money wisely on facilities, you know, because after salaries and benefits, your facilities are Absolutely. your biggest cost. So, and, and we had a great run of building a whole bunch of really fabulous buildings with wonderful architects and contractors and you know, a lot of lead certified buildings in there. Again, that's because of me pushing, we need to be lead certified with our buildings. So talk, so, talk to us a little um, bit about that, that sustainability push. So at Niche Engineering, we've had some really wonderful, smart, um, creative employees. And gosh, probably 20 years ago, probably 25 years ago, we had a strategic plan and the consultant was from uh, the Seattle area. And we were doing this innovative sort of stormwater, uh, green stormwater, green infrastructure work. And he said, uh, you know, what you're doing, nobody else is doing it all around the country. You ought to be capitalizing on that. And we're like, really? It's like SOP for us. And as part of our strategic plan, one of the goals was for us to market that. That became one of my goals. So I was out meeting with the architects, the landscape architects, the owners, a lot of colleges that had an interest in green infrastructure, wanted to have more green buildings on their campuses or wanted to design the green buildings. And, you know, if you're an architect that's been approached by someone that wants to do a lead platinum or even lead gold building or a um, living building, building challenge project, you need to include your site engineer. They're not just someone, you know, the necessary evil we need for the project. The site is part of the building project. And so that's how we um, were able to market ourselves and get on some really, really cool project teams. And it's really amazing when I look at some of the work, like we got on the Stata Center with Frank Gehry at MIT with Lori Olin's office as a landscape architect. We once drew a family tree of all the projects that we got because of that one project. And uh, one of the projects, in fact, was University of Virginia. They've been a client since probably the, the late 1990s. And we've done, you know, many, many, many projects at UVA. And that got us work at Princeton. That got us work at Dartmouth, at Yale. And, and they're all campuses that have a really high interest in sustainability and green buildings and saving, you know, climate change, adaptation. So we we're able to help our clients become more resilient. And most civil engineers, um, I would say, and, I, and I've heard this from many a client, so I'm not making this up, but I've said like, here's what the rules are. We follow the rules. And there were times when we were going and talk to a facilities person in a college and say, this is what your rules say. This is how we would want to do this to make it more sustainable or resilient. And they'd say, yeah, I'd like to see that done on my watch. And there were other clients that would sometimes like a town engineer, something like, no, 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 you're going to follow right. the rules. Like, okay. You know, but we try to figure that out early on. So we're not wasting our clients money. Now that was, you know, that was 20 plus years ago. Now almost everybody wants to get uh, more sustainable with their projects. Yeah. So, so Judy, I, I typically would ask about a leadership or project challenge or story. I, I don't want to handcuff you to anything. You've been in so many different circumstances. I'm curious about, you know, some of the pivot points in your, in your uh, business and how that grew. Uh, but, you know, any stories you can share, uh, leadership lessons learned through your career that you think are valuable to our uh, audience? Number one is 
a business is not a person. A business is a lot of people doing a lot of good things uh, well. And at our company, in the early days, uh, Lisa Brothers, who's now CEO and chairman of the firm, she's a civil engineer with an MBA. Um, she was my first employee. She worked for me at my last firm. And when we announced that we were selling the firm and I was starting my own business uh, back in 1989, Lisa walked right into my office and said, you're not leaving me here. And I'm like, yay. You know, our agreement was that I wouldn't solicit anyone. But if someone came to me, fair game. And so it took me about eight months, seven or eight months to get enough cash flow so I could actually make payroll. Uh, and you know that's when Lisa came on, and we had an, uh, an assistant, marketing assistant, with us as well. Um, we grew the company like uh, we we grew it carefully. I mean, you know, we started out in a recession. Like, like I couldn't get bank loans, and so you know, I used my IRAs, my you know, every credit card I had was maxed out. I'd never bought anything on my credit cards that I hadn't paid off, but you know, cash advances on my credit cards almost on every payday. I mean, it was, it was pretty, pretty hard um, financially. But, you know, if you were to use one word to describe me, it's determined. Like, I'm going to make sure this is going to work. I'm going to figure it out. And, and, you know, by God, we did it. And, you know, it wasn't just me, though. It was Lisa, you know, pulling her weight and the people we had working for us. And, so we're, I mean, we are pretty different as an engineering company and it's not because we're a women-owned business, but I do believe that it takes a special man to work for a women-owned business. Like you're not going to get someone who is a, a jerk. You know, they're going to already have self-selected out by not even applying to come work at your company. So we, we, we really have really smart, nice, wonderful people at the firm and everybody doing their job makes a difference. And we're very inclusive as a company. We've always done open book management. So we were an Inc. 500 company, Inc. Magazine's fastest growing businesses in the U.S. Um, back in the mid-1990s. And through that process, I learned a lot about why you really want to have the financials open um, to your employees. And obviously, it's confidential. I'm not for them to share with others. But for them to understand, you know, how does the business work? How do we make money? What's your part of it? And so everybody would know, okay, my chargeability goal is, you know, 82% or whatever, and here's how it's derived and so forth. And, oh, okay, well, that makes sense. And then this is how we create your billing rate. And this is how we make money as a company. And if we're not making money, we can't put investments in you, whether it's in training or better facilities or equipment. And so we were always pretty clear with employees. We'd have a year-end meeting talking about the last year and the year to come. We'd have quarterly meetings on our strategic planning. We would, uh, employees even asked us at one point, can you do a mid-year, how's the company doing for the whole company um, uh, meeting? And we did it with all of our project managers and above every quarter, but people in the company that were lower than them wanted to learn about it, we said, sure. So probably a good example of engaging people as well is so with our strategic plan we've always had a strategic plan and we have a graph that shows the years across the bottom and dollar volume and revenue and when, whenever you see the graph it goes up and then there might be a little dip like there was one in um, 2001 and then it goes up again and a little flat up again and every time it went up it was right after we did a strategic mm. plan so we were able to pivot based on what was going on in the economy, in the world, you know, what kind of projects we thought were going, or, or clients we thought were, were going to be building, and how do we focus on getting in front of them? And 
everybody did their part. It wasn't just the principals that did that. And you know, to this day, I see so many of our employees that are engaged in client organizations, whether it's the Boston Society for Architecture or NAOP or Crew Network or ULI. I mean, they're engaged in places where the clients are. And we've always had the philosophy that people do business with people they like and trust, which is partly why our internal slogan is we do a good job with a smile on our face. Because people, A, don't expect WBE firms to do a good job. At least they didn't, you know, back when we created that slogan in the early 1990s. Um, but whenever I go in any place, people say, oh, I just talked to Nicole or I talked to Gary or I talked to Lisa. They are so nice and they are so smart. And I'm like, you know, that's what we hope our clients think as well. Um, so we're a lot of people working together, trying to make things better. And that's why... Um, you know, we have these internal slogans. One is uh, building better communities with you. And it's building better communities, whether it's because of resilience and climate change and stormwater or building better communities because we have people that are engaged in the professional organizations in our AEC community, or we build better communities because we do a ton of outreach uh, for kids, teaching them STEM, um, about STEM careers and specifically about engineering. And I know People from my firm are at an event this weekend uh, for it's a minority career fair in Boston. And we also do an annual program called Introduce a Girl to Engineering Day uh, for girls from uh, 6th to 12th grade to teach them about engineering. We've done that for over 20 years. and But I have to say, you know, it's altruistic. We want the girls to learn about it, but it's a marketing activity, business development activity. We invite clients to bring their daughters or granddaughters or neighbors and you know, share it with your employees. One man came to my retirement party, came in, gave me a kiss and a hug, and he's an architect client. And he said, I want you to know my daughter is going to Lehigh to major in engineering because of you. And I'm like, yes. That's, you know, that that's just so gratifying. Because you've been impactful. The, yeah. uh, so as you were talking about that, I, I had read about your Introduce a Girl to Engineering Day. Have you ever heard of Goldie Blocks? Absolutely. I, I, yes. I give them away. I buy them and I give them away to all kinds of people. Yeah. I, I think it's Debbie Sterling and, and I'll put the, Yep. she had a, uh, I think she won a Super Bowl commercial or something like five, seven years ago. And yeah. ever since then, I, I was kind of, you know, a fanboy of her, uh, for, for doing yeah. that. There's Ted talk we'll put in the show notes. So, all right. You, you, you obviously were a huge part of this culture, a huge part of the organization how did you know what time was right to to step up and then step up again and then step away? Mm -hmm. So I had been very active in ACEC, the American Council of Engineering Companies, because, you know, when you go to engineering school, you learn how to do engineering. You don't learn how to run a business. And ACEC is the organization that helps you run your business. You learn about risk management, business development, um, ownership transition, good governance. You learn about the things to run the business better. And I learned through that, that I really need to have a plan in place for my transition if I want to be able to get out. And I also knew that to keep somebody like Lisa, who I'm sure got lots of calls from headhunters and others, you know, over the years, um, she needed to know that there was a time when she would be taking over. So I remember saying that when I was 57, she'd be 48, her kids would be one in high school, one in college at that point, and she'd have the time uh, to be president. And she was COO for many years. So on one she became uh, pre well CEO, and then 
in 2016, she became chairman of the board and then I was gone in 2020. Hmm. So, you know, but, um, one of the things I wanted to say earlier was that, you know, you, you want to try to put people where their strengths are. Someone once told me that, you know, people are like pretty good at these things and not so good at these things. They go to training and they get smarter on these things. And they go from sort of meek, mediocre to half-baked. Whereas they said, take the things you love to do that actually come easy to you and, and you're good at, tra get training on that and become excellent. And all these other things have other people that are excellent at them. So they are all operating at a much higher plane. So my superpower is business development, connecting people. I have a lot of connections and I love going out and talking to people. Lisa's superpower is operations. And she, I mean, I, I couldn't do my job if she wasn't doing her job. I mean, we're definitely a team. And then, you know, we added to that team over time. Uh, we learned a lot about how to reward people through ACEC as well. And, you know, bonuses are one thing, but if people are part of the ownership in your company, then they um, treat it differently. You know, it's, it's like, you know, you can, you can control this part of your, um, your wealth uh, at your company better than you can what's in your 401k. So we have, I think, 30 employee shareholders at Niche now, and there are about 120 some odd people. So there's a lot of people that own a piece of it, and it thrills me. Now, our ownership transition plan, we put it together when I was 48. We actually had a lot of uh, founders of other firms come in and talk to us. One person who you could just tell he was so disappointed that his employees, his senior team wasn't willing to buy the mm -hmm. firm from him. So they went on a, a, I'm not quite sure how to put it, they just made sure that their bottom line was really, really good for two years and then he got sold it. the company. And he got wealthy, but he was disappointed that they didn't want to you know, carry on the business. We talked to a couple of other firms. One was Haley and Aldrich, one was Sims, maybe McKee, and their presidents or chairman and how they did their ownership transition. Because again, we didn't know about it. We tried to get as smart as we could on it. What are our options? And so we uh, decided to use the same consultant that they had used for their plan, Hugh Hochberg out of Seattle. And you know, that plan, knock on wood, had worked back from, uh, it was probably, let's see, so I was 48. So, you know, 21 years ago. Um, and it's, it's absolutely proven that that kind of a program helps, but the firm has to be profitable. And one of the things that we learned from Hugh was that, you know, we were, we were always profitable, but not as profitable as we could be. And if you look at, you know, uh, industry, uh, reports, like what's the average billing or the average profitability, you know, we weren't there. So we made sure that we were sort of making our house run better and then, um, have extra money that we could, in fact, share with our employees the people that were helping us grow the business, give them bigger bonuses so they had the money to buy in. And that money was then used to buy me out. So it was a really, really good plan. And if it weren't for ACEC, I probably wouldn't have known about these things. So, I'm, I mean, it's, it's kind of a... Um... It is a success story. I mean, there are so many people that I, I hear about that, you know, they built the firm, they they ha are kind of self-employed and they have three or four employees and then, you know, nobody wants to take it over. They don't have an exit strategy. I mean, 
yours has grown. It continues to grow. It continues to flourish. People, I mean, it's uh, congratulations. It's 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 really okay. special. I'm very proud of what, what the company I, has you done. Should be. They've done since I've left too. You you absolutely should be. I mean, I I, I admire it. Um, and like I started, I think it's such a great example of what small business success can be not just for an individual, but for, for a group of people. Um, It takes a lot of work though. It really does. And, you know, I mean, there's plenty of things that we've learned in our strategic planning over the years, or I should say that I've learned that, you know, there's plenty of things I'm not good at and I need to do things better and differently. And, and so you're always trying to be a better person and do a better job and help people do a better job. And if you're not doing that, you know, if all you're doing is head down doing engineering, you know, you don't have that camaraderie and that helpfulness that you're, that you need to really make the company be as good as it can be. Agree. Inspiring People in Places is brought to you by MCFA. MCFA is a CVE verified, service disabled, veteran owned small business. At MCFA, our why is to inspire people in places through project leadership. We provide planning, strategy, program management, and construction management support services to a wide variety of public and private sector clients. Uh, switching some topics to uh, some rapid fire questions here. Uh, I know you talked about a number of boards you're involved in and, and some uh, the, the women in engineering. Anything else that uh, outside of the office in retirement you're, you're passionate about or active in? Well, something I've been active in my whole career is mentoring. I've always had mentees. Um, and right now, I, I don't know, I probably have a couple of dozen. A lot of, um, used to be mostly women in engineering school, but now I have quite a few young men as well. And I get joy from helping them and making connections for them and just giving them um, career advice and you know, making sure that they understand the importance of getting a summer job so that that helps you figure out what I want to go into when I graduate. And so, yeah, my, my kids, I, I just love, you know, helping them out. And, and I would say if anybody ever wants to feel like you're being impactful, just talk to a kid in college that may need some help. And you don't even realize that just being there to talk to them is a help in and of itself. Forget the connections that you may provide to them. I got, a, I got an email yesterday from the son of a, a woman who I'm on a board with, and he wants to take a right-hand turn from his career. And he's been over to talk to me a couple of times. And, you know, I'm just having him go talk to people. It, well, you have to figure out what you want to do. And, um, you know, that it makes me happy to do that. The, uh, it remi- that reminds me, there is a Corps of Engineers uh, chief, General Van Antwerp. When I was a captain, he, he gave a presentation and he said, I've been around the, the Corps of Engineers and I've got all of these engineers telling me that they can't wait for retirement so that they can go back and teach. And at that, he, was, he was using that moment to say, like, don't wait to retire to teach. Teach while you're in the job. We need, we need to share that knowledge. You need to mentor our, our engineers coming up. And I, I just recently... Uh, talk with one of our engineers about the same thing. It's like, we, we can't allow that brain drain to leave the industry. There's, there's so many lessons yeah. learned. Um, so I appreciate that. All right. Favorite, yeah. favorite quote. Okay. So I just pulled up a PowerPoint cause I, I do, I give a lot of talks. Um, I made one called take a risk, make a difference. And it's 
a dozen slides, each is a famous figure and a quote, and things that inspire me. And I use them to, to share stories. And so one of them that, that I just love is um, Leonardo da Vinci. It had long since come to my attention that people of accomplishment rarely sat back and let things happen to them. They went out and happened to things. So I like that one. And another one that I just love is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. If you can't fly, then run. If you can't run, then walk. If you can't walk, then crawl. But it, whatever you do, you have to keep moving forward. And then the most special is Madeleine Albright, former U.S. Secretary of State. There's a special place in hell for women who don't help other women. Mm. <laughs> Those are all good, and I have I've I've heard the last two. I didn't. I've never heard the Da Vinci one. I really like that. Um, must read book. So, if I was working, I would say it's Ford Harding's book Rainmaking, which is quite old at this point. I remember I did a book review of it for the ACEC Massachusetts newsletter, probably twenty five years ago. But it's a great how to do business development. And Ford is a great guy. We actually had him come in and talk to our people. And we've had, I think, three or four book clubs over the years reading his book, Rainmaking. And I was just at a SCUP, Society for College University Planners event at Wellesley College last week and was telling the woman in facilities at Wellesley, which is a big client of ours now, the first time we responded to an RFQ from Wellesley we weren't even shortlisted and we were appalled. Like we couldn't believe it. So I asked if we could have a debrief and I went in there with the, the, the man from my firm who was the project manager for that. And I said, just read you know, chapter seven or whatever it was in Ford's book, how to do a debrief or put you in the right mindset. And we went in there and they gave us 15 minutes. Well, we had our 15 minutes and we stayed for an hour and a half. We learned more about what was going on. They learned more about us. We learned why we weren't shortlisted, which is not really just because of what our work experience was, which was fine. We didn't come with a package that looked as snazzy mm. as everyone else's. It, and it's all the presentation. You know, I shouldn't say all. It's much of it is the presentation. And they're thinking ahead, like, can they do presentations to our board? Can they, you know, and we were, we were just the facts man kind right. of thing. And so... We really worked at upping our packaging and, and you know, just just how we prepared presentation packages after that. So, um, and, you know, and then they became a big, big client. So, you know, it's kind of like, you know, turning the sow's ear into a silk purse story. But, <laughs> well, I, I, you know, the ROI that, on that, that book was, and that chapter alone sounds like it was uh, pretty significant. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. You said if you were working, you would do rainmaking if, if you're not working. So I'm reading right now La Bella Lingua. I'm, I'm learning Italian in my retirement. I've been taking lessons for two years. Uh, La mia testa esplode, my head explodes every day. Like I can't take in any more Italian verbs at, at some point every day, but I'm trying to learn Italian. I have a goal in retirement to go to Italy once a year. I'm going to Umbria right at Thanksgiving this year. So, you know, it's one of my goals is um, to, to go there and enjoy the the beautiful life that they have over there and enjoy a gorgeous country full of wonderful people and delicious food. And yeah. Care. Amen to that. Uh, yeah. All right. Dead or alive. If you could hang out with three people for a day, what would, who would they be and what would you do? 
Well, no surprise. One of them would be Cosimo de' Medici. I would love to meet him. You know, he was a ruthless guy on one hand. On the other hand, the um, investment he made in the arts and painting and um, sculpture and so forth. So I would just love to meet him and actually probably his wife too. Um, the other person would be two centuries later, uh, Ella Fitzgerald. I am a lover of the Great American Songbook. I play piano and I play a lot of Cold Porter and um, I have Ella's Cold Porter Songbook out album CD. Uh, so she would be my second one. And my third one would be Kate Middleton. Because mm. I think Kate Middleton, so I got people from three different yeah. centuries, but Kate Middleton um, has a position where she can help influence, I think, the STEM world. And I'm not sure if she knows how she can or that she can, and the fact that her daughter, Charlotte, needs to understand it as well, and her friends. So I would love to talk to all three of them for totally different reasons. So if we were all three together, I'm not quite sure how that would work out. But individually, those would be my three people. Um, I think we should send Kate Middleton's daughter, Charlotte, some Goldie Blocks and get you get you on the calendar over there. Good idea. Swing through on your, so on your way out you of Italy. One year, I sent an invitation to Michelle Obama to bring her daughters to introduce a girl to Engineering Day. Of course, I never heard back, but at least I sent it. You yeah, know? absolutely. That that reminds me of, of I have to tell the story. So George and uh, it's George H.W. and Barbara Bush are driving to some fancy affair and the, uh, the driver pulls over. They have to fill up for gas. And she says, George, that's my high school boyfriend out there. Gets out of the car, gives him a big hug starts talking, gets back in the uh, car. George looks at her and says, man, I guess you're uh, pretty happy you married me, huh? And she looked at George and said, if I had married him, he would have been president. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so I think it's a story but or a joke, but uh, it gets the point across. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right, Jude. So go I'll, ahead. I'll, I'll I'll one-up you on that one. So his son was given the commencement address at Yale, and he says, for all of you magna cum laude graduates, you know, you're going to be our next um, titans of industry. All you summa cum laudes, you're going to be our next uh, um, medicine, you know, researchers and scientists, whatever. And for all of you C students, you too could become president of the United States. <laughs> And I've shared that a lot because I was a B student in college. I did a lot of activities. I was a B student. You know, I wasn't the brainiac, but, you know, I love figuring things out. And that's what I tell people. I like to figure things out. Engineering is a wonderful career. Agree. And we like people. So we had to keep time for our social activities. Yep. Yep. Um, so I think we covered this, but I, I do want to hear what your 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 answer is. What do you want on your tombstone? How do you want to be remembered? What do you want your legacy to be? Sure. Um, well, I would say, you know, I'm a friend, I'm a mentor, and I'm a connector. Those would be the three things. But I don't know if you've heard of the poem, The Dash, mm -hmm. um, which I've used, I actually used it in a, um, I was a speaker at a college commencement. And um, it's a, it's called The Dash Poem by Linda Ellis. And it's a story of, I'll just read you the first uh, stanza. I read of a man who stood to speak at the funeral of a friend who referred to the dates on the tombstone from the beginning to the end. And the point is, what mattered most of all was the dash between the years. And so I think my dash has been pretty full. 
and I've enjoyed it. And I think I've been impactful. Um, plenty of things that I've totally done wrong and screwed up, but you know, hopefully you learn from that. Um, but I feel like um, the dash between my years and hopefully the end, end year won't come for a long time, but uh, that the dash has been a pretty good dash. Uh, from, from our discussion, from everything I've read about you, I, I would have to agree. Uh, but I agree. Hopefully you get plenty of more trips, uh, annual trips to Italy. Anything else you. you would like to leave with our audience and, and the industry, Judy? I would just underscore the pay it forward part. You know, I, I didn't have anyone um, that was a woman engineer until I was eight years into my career. For, and I hired a woman engineer. It was the first time I ever worked with another woman engineer. Um, I didn't know a lot about running a business, so I went out and talked to people. And they were generous with their time when I started my business. Now, whenever anyone reaches out to me that's thinking about starting a business, I make the time for them. I, I, I try to pay it forward because there weren't people for me. You know, I didn't know what engineering was when I was a senior in high school. And, you know, when I told my guidance counselor I was going to WPI, he laughed at me and said, oh, you're only going there because it's a boys' school. Hmm. Like, you know, come on. <laughs> so, you know, paying it forward, I, I think, um, is an important thing for all of us to do. And even now I look at my mentees and they just give me so much joy and I'm so proud of them. And so if I can continue to be helpful in that regard, I will absolutely do it until I'm not. Awesome. Judy, where can people get in touch with you? LinkedIn? Uh, LinkedIn, yep. Or uh, if they go to, they just Google my name or go to Niche Engineering, uh, my email is there. And uh, yeah, I'm happy to talk to people. Awesome. Judy, it was so great talking to you. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing your career with us at Inspiring People and Places. Terrific. Nice to talk to you as well. Thanks. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this show, do us a favor and subscribe to Inspiring People and Places on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast hosting platform. We'd also greatly appreciate if you left us a review and shared this with other entrepreneurial public servants and all your friends and family in the AEC space. Be sure to visit our website, www.mcfaglobal.com. Sign up for our newsletter to stay in touch with us and learn about all of the projects and clients we're helping. Last but not least, we are hiring. We are always hiring. Do us a favor. Take a look at what jobs we have open. Contact us through our website or connect with me on LinkedIn. Until next time, have a great rest of your week and a great weekend.